This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Gabriel Weston discusses her first novel, Dirty Work. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese and news director Rachel Deal debate the latest goings-on with Amazon and Hachette. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookskin. Do we have a lot of movement on fiction? We don't have much. Um, there are two uh, interesting titles in the top ten, however, that I want to bring some attention to. Two very different fantasy novels. Okay. At number nine is Severed Souls by Terry Goodkind. This is the 14th book in the Sword of Truth mm-hmm. series. Um, Goodkind's a perpetual mm-hmm. bestseller. There's something about um, people named Terry who do really well. Terry Terry Brooks and Terry Goodkind and Terry Pratchett all. Mm, like, right, know, right, big, exactly. Big popular uh, fantasy authors but um this is uh, it's it's important not to get them mixed up so good kind of epic fantasy of the very 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 epic sword and sorcery sort um and this is another installment in the the sword of truth series which again number 14 um in in the series and been going on quite a long time now Mm -hmm. and this is definitely one for the longtime fans so that's at number nine uh, on the list with uh, just over 8,000 copies sold. Mm-hmm. And at number eight, with just slightly more over 8,000 copies sold, mm-hmm. is a very different sort of fantasy novel, which is The Magician's Land by Lev Grossman. This is mm-hmm. the third book uh, following The Magicians and The Magician King. And uh, it's a conclusion to the trilogy, and it's been getting a lot of press. A lot of people have both positive and negative things to say about it, though uh, mostly positive. Yeah, I and uh, Lev Grossman uh, is also the senior writer and uh, book critic for Time uh, Magazine, who and and a very early guest on PW Radio. One one of our uh, it's one of one of my favorites. He interviewed us right back. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, you absolutely remember that. It, it's rare we get guests who ask us questions, <laughs> and uh, he, you know, since he's a journalist and a critic he was perfectly comfortable saying well what do you think about but, right, that exactly exactly now this is the uh, the final entry in the uh, magician's trilogy and from what i've been reading uh, i've not read uh, any of the trilogy though i've been wanting to mm-hmm. um there have been comparisons to uh harry potter in that uh just very you know this is what, what i've just been saying that there's a, a school mm-hmm. uh tucked far away and a magician young magician uh, uh, at the center of it. So that is technically true. There is a school <laughs> and there is a young magician at the center of the book, but, uh, or at the center of the, the trilogy, but, uh, the school is quite different from Hogwarts in that it's a college. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a boarding school for mm-hmm. children. So right. you know, at least in theory, the students there have some modicum of maturity and that also lets Grossman tackle some heavier topics. You can, there's, there's a lot of sex and a lot of death and a lot of ennui, um, but also, 
there is some really interesting debate going on among readers of the book about who the central character actually is. Mm. Uh, there's a fellow named Quentin who's the ostensible protagonist, but his character arc is basically going from being a, a disaffected and uh, fairly self-involved young man to realizing that there's a little bit more outside of his head. Uh, much more interesting is following the the progress of the female characters in the series who are not always treated well, mm -hmm. but um, have in their own ways, I think, much more interesting stories. And uh, I've been enjoying reading a lot of articles uh, that, are, that are being written right now about uh, the ways that the story is built around Quentin's interactions with uh, these young women who are his friends, his fellow students, his rivals. So you had mentioned before that there's been, you know, as you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk about this. It's been getting picked up by every newspaper, uh, radio show. And you said there's been, uh, it, there's been a lot of debate, uh, most of it in favor, most of it really liking a lot of fans, but then there's been some detractors. There Tell are a lot a of concerns, um, particularly about uh, the ways that the female characters are handled. There's a very graphic rape scene uh, in the second book that put a lot of people off, uh, myself mm -hmm. included. I read the first book. I thought it was interesting. And um, and then yeah, I, I hit that point in the second book and mm -hmm. I put it down and I walked away. Uh, and, and many other people had a similar experience. Uh, in, the, in the first book, uh, there is a woman who essentially sacrifices herself so that Quentin can continue his quest in, in a way that uh, many readers were uncomfortable with. Mm. So I think that's where a lot of the uh, debate has, has focused about, because it's all part of a larger conversation that's going on right now in the speculative fiction communities right. about the ways that female characters are treated and uh, the narratives that we have that are woman-focused, that are in some ways much narrower and have many fewer options than the narratives that we mm. have for male characters. So it's uh, it's been one of the, the touch points right. in that debate. And it's also very interesting to see these books being so commercial and so successful and treated as, in some ways, as literary books. and as At the same time. At the same time yeah, as that right. they're clearly, clearly fiction uh, that is for, for a fantasy reading audience mm. and, and they're fantasy novels. Uh, Grossman won the Campbell Award for Best New Writer, even though he had had a few novels under his belt. But when, when The Magicians came out, it was his first Campbell eligible right. novel, right. Um, and I was I was at that ceremony. It was very moving. Wow. You know, he he stood up there and he said, "You know, I spent a long time trying to figure out where I needed to be and what I needed to be doing, and I needed to be here doing this." Right. Wow. And, and you know, to say that to a room of four thousand people at uh, the the World Science Fiction Convention, that's right. that's very powerful. So he's he's one of us. Yeah. Uh, in in a lot of ways, but this book has also been treated not as a fantasy doorstopper like the Terry Goodkind novel, for right. example, um, but as a work of literary fiction in a way that I find really interesting. 
Well, I have a couple weeks left of uh, summer. I'll be on vacation. Well, uh, it might be worth so picking up the first, first book. And I think that's what I may do. Give it a try. So what's happening in nonfiction? Well, actually, much more movement than last week. Um, number three, which is our, our, our highest ranking debut here, is by Ronald Kessler. Um, he wrote a book uh, before, uh, The President's Secret Service. It was a New York Times bestseller. He's an investigative reporter. And this book is called The First Family Detail, Secret Service Agents reveal the hidden lives of the president. So, uh, and everyone loves a little, uh, backdoor look at what is going on the uh, inside people, famous people, politicians especially. This is one that we have not reviewed yet, but from a um, uh, little bit of the jacket copy that I've uh, gathered, he, he observes uh, Vice President Joe Biden, or at least talks about his reckless behavior uh, that jeopardizes the country's safety, uh, so, so it says, uh, escorting Bill Clinton's blonde mistress to uh, Chappaqua, and overhearing First Lady Michelle Obama uh, uh, berate and admonish uh, uh, the president uh, behind closed doors. So there's a lot of these things right here that are kind of salacious that people nonetheless like to read about and hear about. So number four, right behind this, um, uh, is In the Kingdom of Ice, The Grand and Terrible Polar Voyage voyage of the USS Jeanette uh, by Hampton Sides. And this is about uh, American naval officer George Washington DeLong's a uh, harrowing uh, journey uh, expedition of the North Pole in 1879. Now, these books, uh, the, the, I, I see quite a few of these uh, um, the, the, these these like disaster books or exploration books, and when told when the right voice is captured, these these are these are just really great, wonderful page turning books. And we say this is a masterful re- masterful retelling. And uh, impeccable writing, a vivid recreation of the expedition and the Victorian era, and a taut conclusion makes this an exciting gem. So, uh, and we gave it a starred review, and that's at uh, number four on next week's bestseller list. I wanted to look down a little bit further. We also have, well, Grumpy the Cat, The Grumpy Guide to Life, Observations from Grumpy Cat at number seven. Uh, but but looking down at number 42 is Beethoven, Anguish and Triumph by, uh, I think it's Jan Swafford. Uh, he wrote a book that was fantastic uh, several years ago, a biography of Johannes Brahms. And here uh, we give him a starred review and a, another uh uh, life, and that is a Beethoven, and we call it brilliant, exhaustive, and um, it's just it looks like a really wonderful book, and uh, it's great to see it on the bestseller list, and that's at number forty-two. So that's what we have. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Gabrielle Weston tells us why she decided to write her first novel about a very hot button topic, abortion. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Gabrielle Weston on the line. Her new book, which is also her first book of fiction, is Dirty Work. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor. It's lovely to be with you. Tell us about your novel. Well, the novel, um, Dirty Work, it came to me as an idea because I was thinking about the scripts that we all have in our lives that we feel are the things that we have to tell people that are perhaps nicer than some of the things that we may have in our heads. And in order to explore this idea, I set about trying to find a main character 
who had a truly untellable story. And in searching for who that character might be, I came up with the idea of a young woman of reproductive age who, instead of having babies, is providing abortion services for a living. Um, I felt that there probably wouldn't be any story in the world that would be more stigmatizing or difficult. And it was on that basis that I decided to write this book about Nancy, who is an abortion provider. What inspired you to write about Nancy, or at least tell us a little bit about her, uh, who uh, is a gynecologist? Um, so I, I was very keen not to, in a way, take the easy way out here and have Nancy be someone like Vera Drake in the movie about abortion, who in a way is a very maternal, caring sort of person, and the fact that she is that kind of character sort of exonerates her in some way in in the mind of the viewer. And I, I was very keen to create a character who was morally more complex than that, who was perhaps someone that you wouldn't like very much, who finds themselves very, very conflicted because of the job that she ends up doing. And I also wanted to explore the idea that, that it's possible for someone to end up doing something very, very radical, like being an abortion provider, almost by accident. And that's what happens to Nancy. She's not a freedom fighter. She's not a politician on any level. She's a doctor who wants to save lives and finds herself doing the opposite. Yeah, so she has a patient who goes into a coma during surgery. Tell us a, a little bit about that part of the story, if you can, without spoiling it. Yeah, so right at the beginning of the book, the setup is that you see a doctor in an operating theatre who loses control of the situation, which is, I suppose, as a surgeon, that's kind of my idea of my worst nightmare. And as a patient, it's all of our idea of the last thing that we would want to think would happen when we were under an anaesthetic. And that's the opening of the of the book. And at that stage, we don't know what kind of surgery has been performed. Um, and we certainly don't understand why it is the main character has frozen. And um, and then the rest of the story really takes off from there. So when she freezes up, do do the other people around her take over? It sounds like a very tense situation. They try to. I mean, in the operating theatre with her at that time, she's the only person who's medically trained. And mm. the other nurses in the operating theatre set about trying to find another surgeon, another gynaecologist who can come in and help um, because the situation is very much life and death. That sounds really intense. Um, and the book contains yeah. some, some other graphic medical scenes. How did you decide what to describe and what to leave out? It was probably the biggest challenge, I would say, of the book in, in a literary sense was I knew that I'd set out to write a book whose main subject matter, in a way, was this idea that we all carry around within us a different script than the one we present to the world, a, a more unpleasant, perhaps more interesting, more nuanced script than the one that we're perhaps happy to share with people in the playground or in the office. And because that was really the subject that I was wanting to look into and really develop, I thought that I couldn't let myself off the hook. I couldn't really allow myself to skirt around 
the abortion act itself. And yet I was obviously very nervous as well that if I didn't do it properly, it could be a very unpleasant, gratuitous or even sensational sort of scene. So I don't want to spoil how I go about doing that, but Mm -hmm. I've tried to write that scene in a way that actually gives the reader an opt-out if they just feel that that material is too upsetting or too much for them to take. There is a sort of almost a signpost to them that this is a part of the book that they can read around if they so choose, although the book itself is really talking about how important it may be for each of us not to avoid some of these more difficult subjects. So it sounds to me um, like you challenge yourself a lot while you're writing this book, even as you're also trying to both challenge readers and give them opportunities to step back from that challenge. Um, It sounds just like a, a really powerful process for you. What was that writing process like as you went through and made all of these difficult decisions? Um, I mean, I I started out really thinking that there's enough romance that's been written by women to last us all a lifetime, and um, I wasn't going to try and write any chick lit. I don't know if it's called that in the States or Mm -hmm. not, but... Women's fiction. um, Yeah. uh, It was a kind of love-hate experience writing this book. It was much harder than, than my other book that I wrote that was sort of based on my own experiences. And I did find it at times quite sort of difficult even the researching of it you know there were times where I had nightmares and Mm. lots of dinner parties where people said oh so you're writing a novel what are you writing about and I'd say an abortion provider and people would go really pale and on one occasion some friends we were having dinner with really really took offense and have never been quite the same with me since um, but yeah, the writing process was, it was challenging. It really was. There were, there were dark days, but, um, I think I always kept a sense as I think many women writers do that there's something in the act has been able to remove yourself from your situation to be by yourself and write that is innately so luxurious mm-hmm. <laughs> that however difficult the writing is, you still get to be by yourself, which is probably my favorite thing and the thing I get to do least now that I have so many children. Yeah. Well, what came to you first? Was it the, the, the character of Nancy Mullion or was it the, her career, her profession and, and the idea it of It was abortion? really this idea. What, what really came to me first and what I couldn't leave alone is this idea of how we manage to keep our mental health whilst deciding exactly what it is of our internal world that the outside world should participate in and what we should keep secret. And I think each of us negotiates that boundary differently. Um, My husband sometimes says to me that he thinks I've got a frontal lobe tumour because if I have a thought, it's just out of my mouth. I'm I'm really, really bad at... sugaring what's in my head before it comes out. And some people, of course, are experts. I mean, my father is an ex-diplomat, and he is absolutely brilliant at processing what's in his brain before it comes out of his mouth. So I'm just very interested in the, the line between the internal and the external reality and the cost, particularly for women, I think, of 
those two realities being too far apart from each other. And and abortion is such a a heated topic that for someone to hide behind this, I mean, it's it's kind of loaded. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, it really, it is such a difficult subject. And I think one of the things I really discovered as I was researching it and as I was writing this book is I think one of the things that makes us all feel very uncomfortable about abortion is it's not just the life and death aspect of it, but also a sense that I think many of us have that we should have an incredibly watertight position on the subject. And so if any of us is asked to comment on abortion, it can be quite scary in such a morally nebulous area to come up with something that sounds persuasive and that can stand up to argument. And I actually found when I was writing this novel that I thought, really, if I can properly write a character who has within herself a sense of pride in her work, but also a terrible, corrosive sense of shame about what she does, then perhaps I can suggest the beginning of a conversation in which all of us with our deeply held positions on abortion could start to just imagine the possibility of understanding what people on the other side of the fence feel about it too, which I think is the way forward for all of us where abortion is concerned. You've been talking a lot about truths and different kinds of truths. Did the medium of fiction give you some more leeway in writing about the truth? I mean, I know that sounds paradoxical. No, I think it's I think it's so perfectly put. I think you I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head and that's exactly what I felt. But when I was writing my first book which was nonfiction, I did feel quite constrained by my own memory and by a duty to my patients. And absolutely I felt for example, if someone had asked me to write an article on abortion or a non-fiction book on abortion. I just would not have been able to do it. But the the medium of fiction, I think, is so perfectly created to sort of hold the tension of questions and to resist the writer answering those questions. And actually, I think it was the only medium in which I could possibly have explored this really, really difficult subject. And are are you hooked now? Are you thinking of writing more fiction? I, you know, yes and no. I found it incredibly rewarding and, and I was never bored for an instant. But I think there was a big cost to my family. I, I, I spent three years writing this book and um, my husband got really sick of having to talk about abortion the whole time. And my kids got quite sick of how sort of abstracted I was a lot of the time and I've got two very very little twin babies now as well as my big two Mm. and um, I've kind of decided that at least for a year or so I should just go into the hospital and do my day job and try some of my imagination free for doing things like finger painting and hopefully life will be long enough that the next time something occurs to me that I feel I need to write about that I can do that but Right now, it's not it's not something I don't have the idea for the third book yet. Now, your your husband is also a physician, a surgeon. He is. He is. So, so you were maybe able to uh, uh, talk with him, or did you, uh, about the aspects of the book? 
back and forth or did you also keep that as you were you're talking a little bit about time alone and keeping stuff to yourself no i did i talked to him about it as much as he could bear um <laughs> there were evenings where i'd sort of i'd open my mouth and he'd see a certain look on my face and he would just look at me with this sort of soft eyes and just please please tell me you don't want to talk about abortion again <laughs> so you know i i chose my times and i chose my questions really carefully um and then i was lucky enough you know i'm lucky enough to have some some friends who are quite good at the gritty moral dark stuff so i had to be careful about my audience and and choose my times carefully too and I, I never would have imagined that being a doctor would be easier on your family than being a writer, because you know, we tend to think of doctors as being busy all the time and always preoccupied. Mm. But you were saying that writing mm. did that to you more. Well, I've arranged my medical life in a way that means I don't spend too many days. I, at the moment, in fact, only work as a surgeon one day a week. Um, so it's very sort of confined. I go into the hospital when I come home. That's it. Um, whereas I found when I was writing this book, everything informed it. You know, I'd go to an exhibition with my kids and I'd see a painting and I'd feel for a moment as if the painting was unlocking a conundrum in the writing or I'd go to sleep and have a dream and that seemed significant. It was sort of like everything was the book and the book was everything. And um, I, I'm not like that. I'm very good at separating things usually, but I did I did find it a very all-encompassing book to write and because it is on such a dark subject and Nancy the main character is not an easy character I kind of got to the point where I just didn't want her to be in my head anymore you know I was quite quite glad to sort of divorce her at the end of the book that makes perfect sense we're going to take a quick break don't go away Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Gabriel Weston, who's the author of Dirty Work. So you're in the UK, obviously. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the abortion debate is different there than it is in the US? Well, that's, I mean, that's difficult for me to say. I wouldn't want to sound as if I felt I was an expert in any way on how it is in the States. Um, over here, People have extremely firmly held opinions on abortion, but I think they are less linked to religion over here. So um, if, for example, there's a debate on the radio about abortion, you will have people talking really with very, very fiercely held and opposing views. But it, it would be unusual for them to start talking about God or the sanctity of life or that sort of thing. So I think it it doesn't have that religious sort of connotation or backup, I suppose. Um, so, I came to the States actually to do some of my research for this book in order that I could feel that I had sort of really understood the way it was in the States as well as in Europe. and. 
I, I definitely felt that it's a conversation that's probably easier to have here in England. There's very little violence towards abortion providers in England. I think that's probably a difference too. So, if if uh, the the people uh, the, in the debate you were talking about in the UK, if not religion, what are the arguments um, against it there? The arguments are the same everywhere. I think the the very understandable, in my view, arguments of people who oppose abortion are that there is something precious and something innately valuable about a human life or a potential human life and that we should be protecting that life and not standing in the way as medics and and ending life or potential life. I think that people who who don't agree with abortion feel that very strongly and I think one of the surprises for me researching this book starting out as someone who would have been I guess politically quite basically pro-choice was I did find myself sympathizing to a large extent with the sentiments of people who oppose abortion. I I think I could see for the first time meeting people Mm -hmm. who feel that way, that their thoughts are thoughts of conscience and that their thoughts are well-meant thoughts, even if sometimes what they result in is not ideal. In in your life as a surgeon, uh, and and as you say, as a, someone in the medical practice generally, have you encountered other topics where you you felt that kind of tug into directions that that you know, both sides were well meant, moral, well intentioned, um, but there was a fundamental disconnect. I suppose the closest that you could get to abortion in that regard would be um, end-of-life type decisions, which people feel very strongly about and is always a a debate that's raging in this country. And interestingly, the the same sort of group of people who are very opposed to um, euthanasia or, you know, the ending of life, patients being able to choose when to end their own lives, are the same people who tend to be very opposed to abortion. Um, but I don't think anything quite has the resonance that abortion does, because I think even when we're thinking about old people that we love very dearly or ourselves at the end of our own lives, there's something just particular and specifically very pure about the idea of a fetus or a baby that just gets us somewhere different than the idea of an old person who's becoming disabled or um, incapacitated by disease. I think there's an emotional content to the idea of ending the life that hasn't yet bloomed um, compared to that of ending a life that has been lived fully. Now, obviously, you're a surgeon yourself. You practice in London. You're an ENT surgeon. And you published your, your first book. I guess it was here. It was back in 2009, Direct mm. Red, uh, a subtitle Surgeon's Story. Um, mm. Tell us a little bit about the book and tell us about what it was that made you as a surgeon decide to, to write. Um. The, the purpose, I suppose, insofar as a book has a purpose until you've written it and then you kind of try and figure out what the purpose was. Um, <laughs> I had read a lot of books, um, very, very good books by people like Atol Gawande, mm-hmm. most famously, but others too, 
about the heroics of surgery. And I've loved those books, and I've found those books have taught me a great deal as a, as a physician. But I found myself often reading those books thinking, well, that all sounds really great and macho and impressive, but didn't you ever have a time when you didn't know how to do that? And what was it like when you messed up? And what was it like when you thought, oh, my God, how am I going to get through this procedure that I have to do? So my first book, Direct Red, was in a way... It was kind of a book that was hoping to be the anti-surgeon in a way or the anti-hero surgeon. So it's a book which looks at the themes of life by chapter, things like sex, death, ambition, and looks at those themes through the prism of a surgeon's eyes, but all the while with my eye on the moments of incapacity and fear and doubt rather than the moments of triumph and potential and perhaps the more male way of telling the story. So Direct Red, the title, is, is, that is like the red alert. That is when something goes wrong. So there are these dyes like um, pigments that you use to stain tissue in an area of medicine that's called histology. And they all have these wonderful poetic names like acridine orange and methylene blue. And one of the names of them is direct red, one of these dyes. So I I thought it sounded surgical and I knew that the book was going to be quite an outspoken book. Um, And I just loved these poetic names of these histology dyes. And so that's where the name came from. So the theme, it seems, between the two books is, is the, anti, the, the, the surgeon as the anti-hero. Um, and it is really interesting mm. that you focus on the, uh, the things that have gone wrong rather than the heroism of the things of, of success of when, when something has gone right. In- I think there are so many wonderful stories told in every literary and cinematic medium, you know, that are aspirational stories and stories of, you know, people coming from nowhere and doing great things and so on. And I don't know, I think sometimes when I'm by myself and on my own and doubting whether I'm any good at being a wife or parent or doctor, I just think sometimes we need more to be said about those moments. Um, And I think patients deserve to know that surgeons have those moments. Oh, sure. And uh, just to talk a little bit about the writing life, I mean, what is what is it like going? I mean, how how do you change gears from being a surgeon? I know you had said you've you've worked your schedule where you're only doing surgery once a week now, uh, but but mm-hmm. how do you do that from from going to be a surgeon with a, you're also a mother of four kids, a wife, mm-hmm. and, and then finding the time to write? And what is the difference in your thinking? Between the yeah, two. well, the, the thing I always find hilarious about this is that all the all the, the writers I know who are men have a special place. It's usually quite a spacious and well-equipped place at some distance from their house. And if they're in that room doing their their writing work, everyone is silent and there's like a kind of electrical zone around where if any kid goes too near, they just, uh, just die. And there's a kind of sacrosanct <laughs> sense in which men are allowed to get on with their work. Whereas in my experience, even really, really established women writers just seem to be writing on the loo or at the kitchen table. And my version of that, I suppose, is um, that I've really written both of these books in the car because if I try and write at home, the kids always find me. 
I don't have an office at the hospital. So what I tend to do is when my husband says, hey, look, there's 45 minutes that you could grab, I just get in the car and I drive the car around the corner so that the kids can't see it when they look outside. And then I write, and usually by the time I need a pee or I'm really uncomfortable, that's all the time that's been allotted to me anyway, and then I drive back around and go home again. So, um, yeah, it's very haphazard and very, very unpoetic in my case. <laughs> well, I can understand you wanting to take a break from that. So, uh, you, <laughs> exactly. You, you said that once you finish writing a book, you look back on it and decide what the purpose was, or you realize what the purpose was. So looking mm. back on dirty work, now that it's out mm. in the world... What's the purpose of it? I feel two things, I suppose. I feel like I wanted to write a book that opens up the idea of there being a value in telling the difficult version of one's own story. And I enjoyed exploring that subject. And I hope that the book says something interesting about that subject. And kind of unwittingly, in a way... I do now feel, having reread the book, you know, at a distance of some months from having written it, that it is, I hope, a really ambiguous book on a subject that most people feel very clear and dogmatic on. And I really hope that there is some benefit in there being a novel out there on the subject of abortion that provides a space for everybody to feel some doubt about their view and some potential for maybe crossing the line to at least slightly sympathize with the way that someone else might feel about it. I would I would really feel very proud if I thought it had done that for even one person. Well, I hope you do. We've been talking with Gabriel Weston, and you can find her book Dirty Work in stores right now. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute honor. I'm Mark Rotello. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, the gloves come off when two PW editors discuss the battle between Amazon and Hachette, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese and news director Rachel Deal are here to discuss and debate the battle between Hachette and Amazon. Hey, guys. Hello, Mark. Hello. Hey. So before we start debating, maybe one of you can just give us, a, uh, us and our uh, listeners, just a little basis, what's going on, just in case for some reason they have not picked up uh, uh, the New York Times or or our issues of, of Publishers Weekly, and we've been covering this, I have to say, pretty wonderfully and been on top of it all, thanks to you, too. <laughs> so um, talk to us about it. Well, back in May... Um a situation that doesn't usually become public knowledge became public knowledge when Hachette, one of the big five book publishers, and Amazon had their renewal of their sales terms, which is a standard thing that happens in the industry, become um, a public issue. And this has happened before with um, publishers and retailers. You know, you, you go through a process every so often annually or so where you um renegotiate this sort of the terms of um 
your terms of sale. And, um, you know, there was an issue a little while ago between um, <clears throat> Simon and & Schuster and Barnes and & Noble, and that sort of became public. But by and large, this is sort of a standard way of doing business, and it, it remains between the two parties involved. Um, and actually, legally, they're not really allowed to sort of talk about the details of it. So um, although Amazon and Hachette have not discussed the actual details of what the sticking points are, um, they've not... They've not signed new terms, and therefore Amazon has um, made some titles unavailable for pre-order and things like this. So um, Hachette titles are available on Amazon, but they're not as widely available as other publishers' titles. And uh, it's become, since since May, um, it's been something that's really played out in the press, and it's it's really come to represent a lot of the larger ongoing issues um, in the industry in terms of what should books be priced at and, you know, all these questions about Amazon controlling so much market share and being able to dictate terms to publishers and being able to control pricing. So um, it's really brought up all these issues and it's been heavily covered um, not by just us and other trade outlets but by the consumer press right and so the but it, it seems to have heated up in the last two weeks uh three weeks i'd say what is the battles going on and 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 uh i know you two discuss this in in various meetings uh here uh Lafair Hachette. Yes, Well, there's been a lot of developments recently, right? You've had uh, the emergence of Authors United, which is Douglas Correct. Preston's 900-page, uh, 900, 900 excuse me, signature uh, author petition, and full-page New York Times ad, sort of blasting Amazon, or not really blasting them, but asking them to tone down their tactics. Uh, and then you had recently Amazon's response to that, which is Readers United, um, and Michael Peach, who's the CEO of Hachette in the U.S now weighed in with you know his little uh commentary on this as well so for as rachel noted this is usually a very private negotiation in fact painfully so for us who want to actually cover this stuff right suddenly it's front and center in the media in a very in a very public way it's become something of a, of a pr battle mm. it has i mean and i think um one of the ironies is that Nobody actually knows exactly what's going on. I mean, nobody could tell you. They could only guess, you know, this is what Amazon wants and Hachette isn't giving, or, you know, this is what Hachette wants and Amazon isn't giving. Um, and I think one thing that's happening is, even though there, we don't know what developments are going on behind closed doors, the sort of, um, the things that the, the, the argument or the um, stalemate represents are obviously... Um, they're things that constantly inflame, you know, people working in the industry and people who follow the industry. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think people who care passionately about reading. Um, so, yeah, it's, I think in that sense, it, it is very interesting. Let's talk about the, uh, the various <laughs> sides of this. And each of you, I know, has, uh, has your own opinion. Well, I think from my personal point of view, uh, you know, there's two battles that are going on here now. There's the terms dispute, which, mm -hmm. as Rachel noted, is private. We don't really know what's going on in the negotiating room. And then there's the sort of PR war, the, the, the anti-Amazon backlash, and then those who are pro-Amazon who are sort of going after Hachette. Um, so I, I look at this in two ways. One, what does this all mean for the negotiation of terms? And I don't really think it means much. I don't think anybody who's actually in the negotiating room is really gaining leverage of any kind from uh, what's being waged in the PR front. Um, and on the PR side of it, 
I'm really puzzled because Amazon and Rachel knows this. We've been covering these guys for a long time. They never comment. They're never public about this stuff. They're never in the media. They're always very quiet about this stuff. So why? Why go public with this now? What are they trying to do with this campaign? Why are they trying to uh, make this sort of a, a public issue? I don't really know what's behind that. Well, I, I agree with Andrew on the first part. I mean, I, I don't think any of the stuff happening in the in the public sphere, any of the stuff happening in the press is actually going to affect the outcome of this. I mean, I, I don't think it's sort of weighing on what's happening in the boardroom or affecting it. But, um, you know, I, I don't know if I disagree, but I, I feel that Amazon's responding because, I mean, look, it's it's a company that's covered heavily because they're such a major company because they have, you know, a finger in so many pies, so to speak, um, in terms of businesses. And there's certainly a lot written about Amazon outside of, you know, pertaining to books and publishing, you know, whether the company's evil and they're, you know, whether they're trying to take over the world. But I mean, I think they've gotten a lot of, um, there was, there was so much piling on in the press about, um, you know, how, how this, how this was playing out in sort of a moral tone. And I don't, I think in some ways that Amazon, because it's sort of a direct-to-consumer business and Hachette is not, I think, you know, when they get a lot of bad press, I don't think it's great for them. I mean, I, I don't know that it means people stop going there to buy things, but I, th- I think it's never good for a company that deals directly with consumers to have lots of negative press or to have lots of negative things being said about it in the, in the media, fair or not fair. So I think that they sort of had to start responding more mm-hmm. than they usually do. I mean, I think one reason Amazon doesn't respond to a lot of press is that they can, you know, by and large, get away with it. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of think they still didn't really want to do it, but were forced to do so. But interestingly, I mean, the way they've been responding to the press, they're not really doing it in the traditional way, which well, is... Tell, tell us how they have been. I mean, we've been seeing the letter, the... Uh well, yeah, they're, um, and, you know, I think, I don't want to speak for you, but I think you sort of said that you think that's a better approach. They're kind of responding directly to their consumers. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're actually writing a letter to their consumers and then they're posting it on their own website as opposed right. to, you know, going to Publishers Weekly or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and talking to a reporter who's writing a story with all these other um, people perhaps saying negative things or, or, or th- something like that. So they're not they're still not doing it in a, tra- in a traditional way, but, you know, they are kind of making more public statements, kind of bypassing the media and going directly to their consumers. They're definitely keeping control of the situation in that way, because if they did come and talk to us, we would be asking them questions that they would not be answering. And it never looks good when right. you're not answering questions that are being put to you. Um, but at the same time, Rachel's right that they did have to respond at some point to some of the negative criticism that came out when uh, you know it was divulged that Hachette titles were having their pre-order buttons taken down. But it's, it's gotten a little beyond that now. Now they're actually on offense a little bit sometimes. And you know, at some point, I would expect them to just say, we're in the middle of a negotiation, so we can't say anything. But uh, we, you, you mean know, Amazon is on offense? Um, excuse right me. Yes, yeah. Amazon's gone yeah, yeah. a little bit on the offense here. It, it's, it's almost as if, you know, they're... they're, they're after the DOJ and the price-fixing verdict came down, it's almost as if they see a unique opportunity here to gain some kind of leverage uh, from their situation. If they can only paint you know, the major publishers as you know, colluding old-world you know, fogies here, right. then you know, we're the future of reading. Um, 
And the only reason that makes me, that I think that is because they're always so quiet about negotiations that if they are in the press and making PR overtures, I have to believe there's a strategy behind it. I mean, it may be inscrutable to me what that strategy is, but it just boggles the mind that they're winging it. Right. It is pretty incredible that such a public debate, we really, I mean, what seems to be so public, we really don't know, as you guys said before, what's really going on there, what's really going on behind closed doors. But it's still out there. And I think it's been said, and we've, we've talked about why this is so public. And is it because it has to do with books rather than other forms of commodity yeah I, I think it's definitely because it's books you know i think if if we were talking about what was the price of cadillacs or diapers or shirts mm-hmm. you know this wouldn't be this wouldn't be written about in the same way you know i don't think it would be written about as much either and i think um you know underpinning that is it's not just it's not just because it's about entertainment and i think it's there's this underpinning of a question that matters to a lot of people and I don't think anyone really knows the answer to which is you know what is an artist owed and it is about pricing Mm -hmm. but I think there are all these questions you know to say Amazon wants cheaper prices and Hachette wants more expensive prices is is accurate I think on you know on many levels but underpinning that is this deeper question about you know what is an artist owed for what they're doing and right. I mean embedded with that is who gets the money because there are all these other questions about how it trickles down how it will trickle down and um, you know unfairness embedded in that right. and certainly a lot of stuff comes out about that but I think um, nine ninety nine is a pretty arbitrary price and that's that's what Amazon says it's worth. And you that's what, what they feel is the magic price right there. That's what they think they can sell. Anything less than that cheapens it. Anything more than that is too expensive. I guess. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know if that's exactly <laughs> it. But that's that's what they want to sell right. it at. Um, you know, so I think it's not just about that actual number and what that number means. It's I think it's questions of why that number. And, and also, of course, you know, I think the bigger issue is control, is who gets to say you know, who gets to say what you sell your art for, you know, should, should the artist be able to control it? Should, you know, the the publisher be able to control it? Should the retailer be able to control it? And I think really in many ways, this is, you know, a battle to sort of be able to, to take charge of that. Um, And of course it gets, I think one interesting thing here that, you know, you, you didn't see in other areas, um, you know, music or something like that is you have a whole other, section now um in terms of self-publishers who arguably have price control over their work um but of course they're dealing with amazon as well and you know amazon is their partner many of them i I shouldn't certainly not all people self-publish through amazon but um just as sort of amazon has the largest slice of the um the retail trade book business, they have the largest slice of the um, Mm self-publishing business in terms of both selling and and publishing. So yeah, I think think it really, it's an issue that sets people off and brings up lots of complicated questions, not just about what consumers should be paying, but really these kind of hard to answer, more deep-rooted, difficult questions about um, the worth of 
Which is art. What, so where what, my frustration. What is the argument we should be having? Well, <laughs> I, my, that's where my frustration comes in is that we really have sort of piled on this grander discussion about what art is worth in the digital age, too, I might add, uh, to what is essentially a, a terms dispute, a contract dispute. And what frustrates me most is that we know how this is going to end. They're going to strike a deal. They're right. going to be back in business together soon. Well, they're still in business together, but they're going to, things are going to get back to normal sooner rather than later. And all these grand ideas that we've been discussing here, we haven't fully aired out. Um, and they're just going to flare up again. And I'll tell you what distinguishes. I mean, we've had a lots of discussion about Amazon as a retailer. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people focus on Amazon as a retailer and the fact that they have so much power as a retailer. But the reason they have that power is because they're a platform, mm-hmm. because they're the ones that took the risk and invested in creating the consumer ebook market, mm-hmm. uh, that they have a position of power now that they wouldn't have had if it had been a more diverse market from the start. So I think that is something that until we actually deal with that question of how do we really promote competition among platforms in the ebook space, Amazon is going to be dealing the cards for some time. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, I I think that no matter how this, how this shakes out, um, you know, it ends with Amazon still controlling the lion's share of, right. You know of the ebook market, so nothing's changed in that respect. So, so this is an argument that's been. This is a battle that's been going on behind closed doors. Though a lot of speculation everywhere. Uh, in the end, it's not really going to matter so much. But who? Let's say in the end, who's going to be the one to to lose the most from this? Or is there anyone? So I mean, is it the authors? I mean, I know that that uh, the authors' union has been the writers' union has been really active uh, against it, and then uh, we, we also have um, Hugh Howey, who's been supporting Amazon. It's hard to pin winners or losers on this, because we know that they're going to end up with a deal, and I can guarantee you that as public as the debate is now, the deal is going to be confidential. <laughs> we're, we're not going to know. You know, at, at the end of this, we're, we're, we're going to have this conversation about Amazon and whether they're evil and wanting to take over the world, and then we're going to say, go ahead and buy books from Amazon again. We're cool, but we're, you can't see the terms of the deal we struck. Oh. So we're going to be right back to the initial frustration that, you know, where we were. Will we get an idea as to the new pricing of books <laughs> when we see them? <laughs> that would be a very good question because after the price fixing, uh, uh, after the DOJ sanctions run out at the end of this year, right. unless you know, I don't know if agency models coming back, I don't know who's going to be setting price, if discounting is going to be allowed. These are all very real questions that we're not privy to the answers right now. Right. I mean, I I think to your earlier question, the biggest losers. Um, I think it's a small group, but I think the biggest losers will be not the marquee authors who might be losing sales on Amazon. I mean, Douglas Preston, you know, he told the New York times that he's making less money because of the situation with Amazon. And I think he might've even given some numbers. Um, and he's not really going to be the big loser. The big loser is going to be a small author without an existing platform or, you know, a large audience, I think. And, you know, if they're really being hurt by the inability to pre-order, um, I think that's going to be something where it's not so much about the money, it's about the sales they might lose and how that's going to affect future contracts. So nobody's going to care when they go to the table to sign their next deal or their next book and say, oh, well, the reason my sales were affected is because I was a Hachette author at that time and Hachette was having this um, situation with Amazon. That's not going to matter to anybody. So anybody in that situation, I think, is really going to be the biggest loser. I don't know how many people really fall into that category. I think it is still a pretty small group, but it's still a certain number of people. And that's uh, those will be the biggest losers in this, I think. 
Uh, well, Rachel, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. And I hope that we'll be able to have you on again to talk more as more developments happen as we see them. So, My pleasure. Thank Thanks for you. having us. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hey, I'm Rudy Rasmus, the author of Love, Period, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an in-depth interview with Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man and also a small press publisher, along with lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 